Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 1st. Happy October from a very sunny San Francisco in Northern California. Around 2,000 miles to my east, I think it's less sunny, at least in a symbolic sense, it's Decision Day in Washington, D.C. Big decisions. Uh, the headlines are dominating it. Uh, decisions within the Democratic Party about which way they're going to vote on the infrastructure package. Uh, apparently, Pelosi plans to hold a House vote today. Um, meeting, according to the New York Times, a meeting of House Democrats turned into a showdown of factions, presumably between left and right, between those who want to spend more or less on infrastructure. It's decisions, decisions, decisions. Uh, New York Times headlines, Democrats divided. So how are they going to decide? Uh, there's a choice within the Democratic Party that I guess I'm not sure it'll get determined today, although it probably will, whether they go to the left or the right. And it brings up a broader issue of, of how we make decisions. And I'm thrilled today that on a day of decisions, we have one of the world's leading experts on why we decide to do things in the way we do. He has a new book out, The Elements of Choice. It's Eric J. Johnson. He teaches at Columbia uh, Business School, or Eric um, J. Johnson teaches at uh, Columbia Business School. Uh, he's talking to me from his home just north of New York City, and he's one of the world's leading behavioral scientists. Um, Eric, that was quite an introduction, wasn't it? Thank you. I hope I can live up to it. You better live up to it. So decisions, decisions, decisions. Uh, as, as the author of Elements of Choice, Why the Way We Decide Matters, um, and a, and, a, and, a, and a long-time thinker on how we make decisions. What do you make of what's happening in Washington, D.C. today? Well, other than perhaps sheer madness, uh, there's a lot that could be said. One of the things that's going on, obviously, is people are posing options to each side. And, you know, I haven't taught negotiation in a lot of years, but the way you pose those options and the way you frame them will make a big difference in the success or failure. So we can only hope that people are successful in figuring out how, how, how to pose the options to each of the two sides. Should, Eric, um, should Nancy Pelosi or AOC or the conservative Democrats, should they read your elements of choice? What would they learn from it in terms of making a correct decision today? It might be a little late now, but I think the thing that would be clear is that the process is important. It's essentially important. But the outcome is what's really going to matter. And I'm afraid that what's happening now is something that is very much very concerned about feelings about them and not about the feelings of the actual outcome, which is what will be the actual legislation, will be the actual infrastructure. It's, 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 it's a really very different decision than we make most every day because it's one that's very social. At the same time, how you suggest things, how you pose them. So you say, I think even just having a deadline is a good example of framing a decision in a way that will make an out. And Pelosi did that. And as of 11 o'clock last night, apparently, she said, tomorrow will actually vote, not now. Eric, yesterday we had um, a 
Israeli um, healthcare expert, Talia Miron Schatz. She's worked with Daniel Kahneman in the past. I don't know if you know her work. She has a new book out about how to navigate healthcare. Uh, your life depends on it, what you can do to make better choices about your health. So uh, her work very much fits in with uh, your book about the elements of choice. And you, and you write a lot in the book about healthcare and how we navigate the system. How can reading your book, The Elements of Choice, help us make sense of the arcane, increasingly chaotic healthcare system and how we should make choices about our body and our health? So I think part of the, the important thing is to realize the way those choices are presented. Let me be very specific about this. Almost everybody every year chooses health insurance. Let's take that as a, a good example. And we know that makes a big difference actually in how long people will live. If you have insurance, you're actually going to live longer. And that can be a really tough decision. Uh, there are some states, Utah, that on you know, the Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, actually have exchanges that presented at one time up to 160 different policies. Now that's just madness. I mean, how can you possibly actually carefully think about 160 different things? And so what people do when they do that is they assume a simple way of doing it. Uh, something I call a plausible path. They say, I'm only gonna look at deductibles. So I hate deductibles. That's the amount you pay every time you go to the doctor. I'm going to actually just choose low deductible policies. And that's a mistake, it turns out, because for that particular policy, if you have a low deductible, you're gonna have a very high premium. And what you really should do is look at both, combine the two. That's very hard. We show in lots of research, people don't do that. If you simply do it for people, they'll make much better decisions. So a lot of the things that the person who designs the choice architecture, the person who actually is designing the choice for you is gonna determine a lot about what you do. So the implication is pretty clear. Choice architecture, go to a place which has a good design, a good choice architecture, when it will help you make a better decision. Choice architecture is the core of your book. We'll come to that. I introduced you, Eric, and, I, and I'm not sure if I'm being fair here, as a behavioral economist. It's a very fashionable, popular discipline these days. It was founded by uh, two Israeli uh, academics. I was going to call them economists, but they're not. Daniel Kahneman uh, and Amos Tversky. Uh, are you a behavioral economist? And, and if so, what does that mean? Because when you're Making decisions, for example, about healthcare, uh, emotions always interfere. And my understanding of, of, of the work of people like uh, Kahneman and Tversky is to suggest that emotions always lead us, in a sense, to the wrong place. Is that fair? I think that's a little bit of an exaggeration. I was lucky enough, um, actually, to, to work with Tversky when I was a postdoc at Stanford. Um, so wow, like, that was a long time ago because he's was, uh, unfortunately so long departed, yeah? Yes, um, unfortunately, yes. Um, and it was quite a while ago when we did this work, but it was actually looking at the role of affect in decision-making. Um, it's a little bit of the only work he did in that area. And what we showed is that affect can actually change your probabilities. So if I'm in a bad mood, I will think bad things are more likely to happen. If I'm in a good mood, I think good things are more likely to happen. And you know, that sort of makes sense, but you really don't want to make important decisions based on a, a transient mood just because you're in a bad mood because you had a fight with your spouse or, you know, your stocks were down. That's not a real good basis for making decisions. Lots of people will argue that there's some core to that feeling, and that is something you should pay attention to. That's not the central core of my research, but way back then, it was pretty clear that 
emotions are very important and mood states, really light emotions are even more important. You talked about choice architecture. It's the key conceptual um, bedrock of, of, of your book, The Elements of Choice. Uh, is um, choice architecture designed to make us more rational or should it be designed to make us more rational, more self-interested, more separate from things? After all, you know, when it comes to something like healthcare, your life depends on it. Uh, Talia Miran Schatz was very rational talking about other people's deaths or, or near deaths, but it's very hard to talk about uh, our own health without some sort of inter emotional interference. That's right. And, you know, let, let's think about choice architecture as something that will enable you to make better decisions. The word rational sort of is funny to me because I know what a good decision is. Rational actually implies certain axioms and those are useful. If you want to sign up for that, that's a great program. But also I know that if I choose a, an option, let's say, say I choose a health insurance policy and it's just like the other one, but it's more expensive, that's probably a mistake. You don't need to have a lot of fancy logic to say, am I paying an extra $1,000 a year for the same policy? I'm making a mistake. So if I have a design, if I have a website that I choose um, health insurance on, or I'm choosing treatments, and I'm choosing a treatment that is obviously bad, that's a mistake. And that's what we're trying to prevent. You don't need the high power of fancy economic axioms to know when a bad decision occurs. You um, you talk about choice architecture, and of course, the people who design the architecture, say for healthcare, are the insurance companies. Uh, we had Tom Hartman on the show suggesting, and I think he's quite right, that the American healthcare system is a catastrophe. Uh, we also uh, had um, a very distinguished American doctor, Robert Pearl, on suggesting that doctors are as unhappy as patients. How do we design? good, responsible, coherent um, uh, choice architecture, if the system itself is rotten, say, for example, with healthcare, when the insurance companies themselves are, are much more interested in their own bottom line than our own long-term survival? I mean, I think part of it is to make elements of it as transparent as possible. So, But why would they do that when, when, when they want to pursue their own interests? Of course, they may want to pursue their own interests, but in, in some markets, and the Obamacare exchanges are a good example, those markets are heavily subsidized. I mean, most people in the Obamacare market are actually using tax dollars to pay for their... So it's not a, uh, a game where regulation has no play. In fact, you know, one could argue that regulation might have play in other, other ways. But sometimes it's just the belief that they're making the right decision or that standard economics steers them well. So I, I'm going to drill a little bit on this notion of, even though insurance is boring, I know it, of a deductible. That's the, what you pay um, every time you use the doctor. People, regular people hate deductibles, but the reason they're there is economists think they keep you from cheating. They keep you from using too much healthcare that you wouldn't use otherwise. And as a result, I think the average consumer is both confused and actually less likely to use healthcare there's a lot of evidence that deductibles lead people not to go to the doctor when they should. Um, and they're really not going to end up, and maybe that's an insurance company's best interest, but it's certainly not in the consumer's best interest. A show wouldn't be complete these days, Eric, without some reference to the great 
British diplomat, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and he's at the front of your book, like so many others. His great quote, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. I actually put this quote as the beginning of, of, of my book, How to Fix the Future. It's a wonderful quote about rebuilding the Houses of Parliament after the, the Nazi bombing in 1941. Um, you put the quote in because you suggest that choice architecture can be compared quite literally to the, the architecture of buildings. So how we build it is key. Um, talk a little bit about the, the best way to, to build choice architecture. So, you know, there, there's an assumption that just because we can build a website, we know what a good choice architecture is because we know something. That, but from the consumer's perspective, from the user's perspective, that's not necessarily true. Um, the br brilliant thing about the Churchill quote is that he realized that having two opposing faces, you know, the two parties in the traditional British system faced each other. And that actually drew your attention to the opposition, not to backstabbing, like maybe going on in Washington today, internecine fighting. Okay, so that's a way where basically, because he'd been at that point, I think in parliament for something like 40 years, he actually had very strong feelings about what worked and what didn't work. A lot of decisions can be evaluated and a lot of uh, choice strategy can be evaluated by looking at how well people make choices there. So. In our work, for example, we give people the website and say, find the, the architecture that's the cheapest for you and tell them what that would be like. And we simply, like you would in a flight simulator, you sort of say, land at Charles de Gaulle and you see whether the pilot can do it or not. And if he does it well, you have a good cockpit. Well, you can actually build a simulator for a website and see if people can actually choose the right charts architecture. And if they do, you have a good website. If you don't, maybe start again. And we find, by the way, that lots of people pick close to chance. They actually are doing very badly in that decision. Choice architecture, I think, is, is very important at a, a, a sort of a, at a meta level, at the government level. Uh, we had your behavioral economist colleague, Cass Sunstein. He teaches at Harvard on the show recently. He seems to write a book every week. Um, he was talking about how can social change happen, very much from the point of view of his famous book written with uh, Richard Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics, Nudge. You suggest at the end of the book that uh, choice architecture can be used to address the big issues of our day, the issues of inequality, of fake news, obviously healthcare, um, and of climate change. Are you in the, the Thaler-Sunstein camp when it comes to the idea of using government to nudge us to make responsible decisions, both for ourselves and for the community? I think there's a reason I think choice architecture is not equivalent as, uh, to nudging. Um, and actually, to be honest with you, if, if people read the first chapter of Nudge carefully, they say that there is no such thing as not nudging. But what choice architecture is, whenever you're posing a choice, whether you're being a government or a parent, for example, laying out outfits for their kid, you're making a set of decisions that will affect the person making the choice. You could lay out two outfits, you could lay out four outfits, you could make them the same color, you could make them different colors. That's all choice architecture. And there's no option of not being a choice architect. You have to decide how many options to present somebody. The same is true with the government. The people who gave you 160 choices in Utah 
they were just bad choice architects because people were going to make worse decisions. Nudging has taken the, the as you're pointing out, very much the perspective of I'm going to affect people in a certain way uh, because I know better than them. Choice architecture is about getting people to choose the right option for them. And actually, I think that is something that Lauren Sunstein might agree with. But clearly, the way that has been taken is basically as a way of somebody, and it's not always government, it could be companies, it could be your spouse influencing your decision. And choice architecture is going to do that no matter what, it's just not an option. As I said, you suggest at the end of the book that choice architecture can be used to address some of our most uh, troubling um, problems, uh, which we all know about. We've had so many shows, for example, about fake news. We had Jonathan Rauch on the show recently talking about redesigning the internet to be friendly towards the truth. You suggest at the end that, it, that the choice architecture could be used uh, to address polarization and, and fake news. Perhaps you might say something about that. How, how, would, how would we begin to, um, to confront polarization and fake news? So there, there's a lot of work that suggests that people aren't actually reading articles that they forward. I mean, the, the reaction is one that's very emotional. I, I basically see something that, oh, that's so right, click and forward it to my five friends. Um, something that's been an experiment that's been used, and actually this happened to me the other day on Twitter, is when I was going to forward something, it said, do you want to read the article first? Now, that's actually changing the process because it says, you know, maybe I should. And so that's a choice architecture sort of, hold on a second. You haven't read this. Do you, are you sure you want to do that? And maybe Twitter, sorry to interrupt here, um, sure. Eric, maybe, maybe Twitter should make a uh, a chief choice architect, if Jack Dorsey is listening, or, or Facebook. Do you think that might be a good title for people at these social media companies? Oh, I think it's it, it, not a title that rolls off the mouth. Uh, that's why in the, in the book, I use the word designer to talk about these people. Yeah, or choice but, designer. But cho a choice designer, they, they exist. It just may not have the title. The person at Amazon, the person at the New York Times, the person at any website who's actually making the decisions and what, what's there is a designer. They may not have that title and they might not, and this is the scary thing, they might not even realize the power they have. So a choice designers that don't know what they're, sorry, don't know um, the power they have as choice architects. So choice, having choice designers or a chief, chief archi choice architect might be uh, valuable uh, on social media platforms for dealing with fake news. What about inequality? Uh, we had the Stanford uh, historian Walter Scheidel on the show last year talking about the profound inequality of early 21st century capitalism. Or well, recently we had Isle Press on about dirty work, this new underclass in uh, our network. How can choice architecture address inequity? Obviously, it's a political problem, and I'm not going to claim choice architecture alone will solve it. But there are certainly things that can be done that actually make differences. So being a New Yorker, driving cabs, I, you know, we know it's a tough life. It's even tougher in the world of Uber. But what was very interesting is in 2015, the old meter was replaced by um, a screen. One company happened to have 15, 20, and 25% tips. The other company had 15, had 10, 15, and 20. It turns out cabbies made a lot more money when you change the options. Now that's a place where choice architecture, some analyses say increased pay by 5%. 
that might not sound a lot, but if, for many cabbies, that is a lot. And, you know, that's more that little change in, in choice architecture got the cabbies more than most unions do in negotiations. So that's classic nudging, isn't it? Um, it's it again. We got to define what we mean by a nudge. Yeah. Either way, we did it. So if who who nudged the people who did the 10, 15, 20 or the 15, 20, 25? They were both nudging in that sense. They both are choice architects. The outcome is what was changed. And I agree with you that that's actually a judgment on the part of the choice architect. The other issue that, of course, comes up endlessly, and this came up twice in the last couple of days, is global warming and the environment. We had Kinari Webb uh, yesterday on the show about uh, a rebuild or protecting the forests. Uh, uh, and then we had Catherine Hayhoe, the chief scientist of the Nature Conservancy, on with her new book, Saving Us, at the beginning of the week. You also suggest that choice architecture can at least begin to help us address this big issue too. Uh, perhaps, uh, Eric, talk a little bit about that, how it can be used both by companies, individuals, and governments to address perhaps the biggest of all problems in, in today's uh, early 21st century. So there are some simple demonstrations that have been shown. So electricity generation is either, roughly speaking, green or gray, either based on coal or based on renewable resources. And gray is a little bit cheaper. Um, and people will normally, if left to their own devices, uh, choose that. But what has what people have done is they just simply change the default, the option you have you'll get if you don't make a choice to green, and that actually increases usage a lot. In fact, typically the market share goes up by fifty percent, even though it's slightly expensive. And importantly, that stays over time. Now, I think we need to get into discussion of that a little bit more deeply and understand whether that's good or bad. But that's a place where a simple change in the default can change people's choices of electricity provider. Uh, Catherine Hayhoe also speaks very persuasively about the need to talk to one another endlessly about the issues. She suggests that, for example, as, as, as Christians or as God-fearing people of, of any political stripe, we can, we can establish conversations about the environment that, that put us on the same page. How, does, how can choice architecture help with that? Um, to make people of different political opinions, different geographies, different cultures, different races or religions, how can it help them understand that other people actually are in their camp, not in the other camp? I, I think a big part of this is we have the perception that everyone's attitudes or everyone's beliefs are written stone. It's sort of like anonymous think I look at a car and I have a reservation price for it. Now, when you think about the environment, it's really complicated. So think about a concept like climate change. People know a lot, and it may not quickly boil down to one simple um, yes or no answer, critical decisions. So we, for example, have shown that on warm days, people are more likely to say that we believe in global warming than on cold days. And that's because when they construct or assemble their, their opinions, they're thinking about different things. Another way we've done this is we call a fee for emitting carbon, either a carbon tax or a carbon offset. And the offset, it turns out, is accepted by Democrats and more Republicans. The tax, you lose all the Republicans. The Democrats are sort of okay with that. 
but the, the conversation has to come to realize there's a bunch of things we're less sure of than we think we are. And that actually conversation could actually bring out the complexity of our own beliefs instead of just a simple point, I'm against it or I'm for it. Eric, maybe we should ship you off, into, ship you off to Washington, D.C. to help Nancy Pelosi bang these heads together. You always sound so reasonable. Uh, the subtitle of the book is um, uh, Why the Way We Decide Matters. But of course, we know, I'm talking to you from Silicon Valley, that the we is often artificial intelligence and that technology is increasingly challenging and replacing us. Uh, we had Jeanette Winterton, the great English fiction writer and polemicist, feminist on the show a couple of weeks ago. And she's quite positive about how AI can change things. What's your view on AI and the elements of choice? Can it help the way we decide matters? Or is it a threat to our own agency when it comes to making decisions? Probably a little bit of both, but I'm mostly on the positive side. Often when we have an overwhelming set of choices, or imagine the 160 healthcare plans that I could choose, I'm actually, there's a small subset that are really right for me. And, you know, there are going to be systems that are going to be much better than I at going through that list and saying, here are the three that you need to think about. The system won't know everything. It's going to know that roughly, you know, I have kids or don't have kids. I have these diseases. I don't have these diseases. They know my age and know how likely, how much medical use care I'm going to use. Now, those systems can do a lot of the work. So instead of AI, I might think of it as uh, intelligence augmentation that is actually getting a big part of the decision, getting it down to a small set of things through some sort of algorithm. And that's helpful. And obviously, we see that in the realm of recommendation systems all the time. And you know, that sort of works. How, how do you view AI in, in, in the next 10, 15, 20 years? Is it going to be as revolutionary as many people out here in Silicon Valley believe? Or are we still going to be having these kinds of conversations in 20 years about decision making? Well, I, I think there, there, there is an element that's not easily ca captured by AI. I mean, when the algorithm knows more than I do about what I want, that's going to be a, a different conversation. Well, that's why Eric Schmidt famously said he wanted Google to know in 2010. And it seems like companies like Google and Facebook and perhaps Amazon are, are, are somewhat of the way already there. Well, we're, we're, we're past 2010, I'll point out. And so there, there has always been a projection, by, a, a happy projection for, for many of these uh, forecasts. Um, I think the other thing to realize is just the data the algorithms have to operate on is just so, so much better. So the algorithms have improved and yes, AI is good. But the other thing is just the data. I mean, the, the, there, there's a real issue to me about data collection and choice architecture, which we could talk about as well. But the sort of fuel for many AI algorithms is an incredibly rich data about my behavior. We had um, Eric, the, I, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's, he's really good, actually. He's a young uh, scientist in the UK, uh, Stephen M. Fleming. Uh, he has a new book out, Know Thyself, The Science of Self-Awareness. Is what you're doing a kind of social science of self-awareness? Are you in the business like Fleming? of trying to make us wiser about ourselves and the world around us? I would say the world around us. I think, you know, if you ask people, let's take one of the standard tools of choice architecture, like a default. 
you show them the default and they make a choice. You say, were you affected by that default? And almost everybody says no, even though when we look at the data, we could say they chose something differently than if we had done something else. Now, so there ultimately is this question of, is there a way of getting people to be more aware, more self-aware about the influence that the choice architecture around them has on their choices? And I think that's sort of the second reason I wrote the book. It's not only to help designers do a better job, but also to make people aware that designers can influence them. You did a very good job, Eric. Congratulations. The element of choice, why the way we decide matters is a very good introduction to the behavioral economics of choice and of choice architecture. Definitely uh, an important read for people interested in this subject. Congratulations. You're talking to me, Eric, from your office uh, just north of New York City. So lots of books behind you. Um, in these strange times where we're still perhaps stuck a little bit at home, I'm going to be in New York at the weekend. Um, what should people be reading? I have to say that my choice on all this, in addition to your book, um, is Michael Lewis's wonderful book about uh, the, the Kahneman-Tversky relationship, The Undoing Project. It's a magnificent book. Uh, what would you suggest people read in addition to Lewis's book and uh, your new book, The Elements of Choice? A uh, quick, small side story. I was one of the stories that um, Lewis talks about, uh, Amos Tversky, was a story that I told him over dinner when a group of us got together with Danny mm -hmm. Kahneman and gave and uh, gave him background for the book. Um, Excellent. Well, it's for, for writers like myself, it's shameful how much Lewis has done. I don't quite know how he does it, probably by taking people like you out for dinner. So so, well, so in addition... I feel, uh, by the way, about Cass Sunstein. How does he do Well, it? Sunstein is a phenomenon. Not only, you know, he's married to one of the most brilliant and beautiful women in the world. He He's still a competitive squash player and he writes a book every month. I don't quite know how he does it, but maybe he's taking something we don't know about. Um, anyway, uh, what books would you suggest in addition to uh, uh, The Elements of Choice, Eric? Uh, let me make, make an, a, a book that is old and prescient in many, many ways. And that's a book by Herb's, Herbert Simon, who was the first Nobel laureate in what we now call behavioral economics. And he wrote a wonderful book called The Sciences of the Artificial. Small book, short book, still very much impressed by the MIT press. And it talks about how we have a, a very interesting foreplay between the artificial world and the natural world and how we draw those lines very well. And I think it actually was an inspiration for me. And I think anyone who's interested in technology would benefit from that book. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Again, congratulations on the new book, The Elements of Choice, Why the Way We Decide Matters. It's a really good introduction uh, to all this stuff. Uh, keep writing, keep thinking, keep explaining the complicated world to us, Eric. And I'm sure we'll have you back on the show in the not too distant future. Thank you again. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.